You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. All right, why don't we get underway? I'm Brian Hawkins. I'm going to do more introduction here in a second, so I won't go into that too much right now, but I want to thank MBDA for having me on on this uh, webinar, giving me the chance to talk with you guys and to to share the stuff via the recording afterwards. That's going to be great. Uh, This presentation is one that I have shared in various forms at a few different venues. I uh, recently did it at a uh, P2 group for the MBDA too, and they liked it, so we're going to move ahead with it. So the title is, Being the Bike Shop of the Future is all about being a great retailer of today. What I mean by that is we're talking about the bike shop of the future, for sure, but we're not talking about the bike shop of the future as in 25 years from now or 50 years from now and what space age technology is going to be available then. What I really want to concentrate on is the things that great retailers are doing today outside the cycling category and how that might apply to what the cycling category is doing, bike shops are doing right now, uh, and see what we can learn from the best practices outside our category, because there's some things we could be uh, learning from right away. One observation that I have right out of the gate is the bike shops over the last 50 years, say, haven't changed quite as much as other retail has changed. Um, At the end of the day, uh, bikes are definitely a challenge to merchandise, definitely a challenge to design around. Um, And the, you know, the business has gotten more challenging. So there's a lot of things that have caused this. uh, And I think we can very easily move and and make some changes on this front, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so like I said, I am Brian Hawkins, and I own B. Hawkins, Inc. and Fixture Lab, and for years, like since the early 90s, I've been involved in the bike world in terms of brand management, advertising, uh, promotions, research, things like that, and so I come from a real deep background in terms of brand management, And the store design aspect came about as a result of understanding that the store, retail store itself, is the best possible manifestation of each uh, shop's brand or each uh, bike company brand. And so it was very important to pay attention to. So that's the angle that I come at everything from is from a brand management perspective. I'm also deeply associated, deeply rooted with Project Bike Tech. This is their plug. If you haven't checked out Project Bike Tech, do, because it's a great organization that helps bring uh, kids in high school education on how to work on bikes and all kinds of of great skills and stuff that provide workers for the bike community and uh, just give the school some really great curriculum. Okay, a couple disclaimers before I get going. I acknowledge that sometimes the most powerful solutions are the ones that violate everything that we're talking about. So as soon as I say, here's the best practice in terms of doing something, you're going to be able to conjure up an example of something completely the opposite that means, uh, you know, and and they're doing great. So so, uh, I just want to acknowledge that's the case. There's always an exception to everything that we're talking about. I'm talking in general terms and Uh, some best practices, so that's where we'll concentrate. I don't claim to be an expert in all phases of running a retail bike store. I'm around bike shops all the time. I know many, many owners. I worked in bike shops. However, I don't own one, and I don't understand thoroughly all the challenges that you face, so I just wanted to acknowledge that right now. Since our meeting isn't 90 days long, I've had to be aggressive with the editing. Some of the topics in here I'd love to talk a long time about, talk for hours about, but we don't have that opportunity. So I'm going to kind of skim across the top of things, hopefully get some really good content out. And if you certainly, if you want to dig in later, if you want to contact me, feel free. Um, and there's bound to be times in here when you feel like I'm preaching to the choir, like, duh, I'm already doing that kind of thing. Um, But I can't assume that everybody's doing that. So I'm going to cover some things that are fairly basic and then some stuff that's a little bit more advanced. 
the modus operandi <laughs> that got us here won't get us there. If we want to move beyond transactional relationships with our customers, we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them. If we can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them, then it behooves us to understand uh, what we've been doing and why we've been doing it. So I want to talk about the history of bike retail. And a good way to do that is this three waves of retailing. This, the three waves is from the New Rules of Retail book. It's just a great way to kind of dig in and break things down. So let's talk about wave one. In wave one, from 1850 to 1950, retail was a very different beast. Back then, production would drove everything because production was the challenge. Manufacturers had all the power because whatever they made, you were going to have to buy. Uh, and the uh, product was very minimally available or fragmented and tough to distribute. So the supply was always chasing the ability to keep up with the demand. Uh, and you, uh, like I said, the, as a consumer, as a say a bike shop or any retailer, you had to take what you could get, and you didn't have much choice. And that's when Hudson's Bay, JCPenney, Sears, those kind of companies came to be. This is a photo from a real bike shop from back in the day. I'm not sure what year this was. Uh, probably the 30s, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> and I always crack up when I see this picture because there's so many similarities from way back then till today. Like, we have our cargo bike up here in front. We have something that looks like it could be an electric bike. I think it's actually got a gas engine on it, but that could be an electric bike. All the bikes are lined up against the wall at that 30-degree angle with the wheels turned. There's some hanging down there. Then they have some other miscellaneous products. Of course, we all carry gramophones in our store these days. That's a good thing. Um, but there's one thing in this picture that really caught my eye that's been the same since the beginning of time in a bike shop, and that is the guys that are standing in the back of the store looking at you when you walk in the front door. <laughs> so let's talk about wave two. Wave two is from 1950 to 2000. So think about 1950 and what had just happened. It was after the end of World War II. It's after the Depression. It's after certainly after World War I. And the ability for companies, for brands to manufacture, to mass produce things had just gone off the deep end. Suddenly production was uh, just going crazy and you had abilities that you never had before to mass produce all kinds of things. So now the supply is starting to catch up with the demand. In the second wave, this is kind of the birth of the American dream uh, innovations, advancements, and there was unprecedented growth. Um, since it was post-depression and, and the wars, there was a real pent-up desire for better quality of life. So people were grabbing onto things that just were fun and beyond the necessities. And there was a huge jump in terms of the quality of living. There were more jobs. There was more spending. Things were just looking awesome. And really, if it had a motto, it would be work hard, be good and the dream will come true. So it's a very kind of a kind of a simple time, a very, you know, very thriving time. And during that time phase or during that time period, there was another thing that happened and that was the birth of the classic American bike shop. I mean, you can kind of smell it coming, right? Because now the bikes and all of the related products can be produced in a timely fashion and distributed, and they're, they're something beyond the necessities. Uh, they're fun. You know, all these factors put together meant that bike shops were going to take off. Um, the following stores, I don't think any of them are any of yours, but I don't exactly know who's in, the, who's in the meeting, and I'm not even sure who some of these stores are. So I hope that you're not in here. <laughs> But watch for familiar tendencies when I show you the pictures, because I know we've all seen these. And I'm not at all saying that all bike shops look like these. This one's in Boulder, and this, is, this could be present day. It's very close. But it's just a good example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. The classic American bike shops, cozy like a pub. And when I say pub, I mean like English pub, as in where you go to drink beer. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's super, super duper comfortable if you know what you're doing when you're in that space. This is a picture from a real pub in England. And 
you know, there's just stuff all over the walls. There's people enjoying themselves down below while there's all of this crap on the ceiling that is really scary looking and disgusting. Uh, this is another example, very crowded, stuff hanging everywhere, crazy signs like this one, courteous service at reasonable prices. If for any reason we fail to live up to this promise, please don't tell anyone. Certainly a bike shop would never put a sign like that in their store. Oh my gosh, of course they would. You know, this is from a bike shop in Montana. Diplomacy is the ability to tell a person to go to hell in such a way that they actually look forward to the trip. So we can see some similarities there. The classic American bike shop, there was poor lighting and there was no negative space because the product was just flooding in. And if you put it in the store, it was pretty much going to sell at one point. Uh, and it was so exciting to get in there. So the product started to fill up every negative space that you had. And lighting wasn't important at that point because all that was important was getting the product into your store. The environment could be in intimidating at times because you have all of these products and many of which you've never heard of or seen before, don't know what they do. The guys that work the shop obviously know and sometimes that can be a real intimidating scenario. Uninspired design kind of ruled the day. Like you just didn't need to design things very well to be successful. You needed to put things out to be successful. And I just wanted to point out here that bike shops were not alone in this in this phase. Like there's a number of categories that have gone through this same kind of a thing. Like this is what a computer store looked like. So we're not alone there. Things weren't merchandised as much as they were put out on the floor. If you could get it on the floor, it was probably going to sell. So naturally, the more you can put out, the more you're going to sell which is where the old stack it high and let it fly thing came from. And I've heard that forever in the bike business. Not everybody adheres to that, and not everybody feels like that's a good idea, especially these days. There's been so much improvement. Uh, but I'm just telling you that that's where things came from, and, and that created the problems that we're uh, trying to address these days. So these stores started to feel a bit like a third world country market, you know, like any negative space is gone. There's no lighting. It's just a lot of product. Because of the proliferation of all the products, all of that stuff, some things tended to stay where you put them for years and years because people couldn't possibly move through all of the product that you had. And sometimes it got to the point where it was actually dangerous. Like this shop, if you're over six feet tall, you're going to hit your head on the bikes walking through the store. Um, and of course, that's not optimal in terms of telling the stories of riding a bike and all that. So by the end of wave two, we had, you know, continually the supply was increasing and distribution was getting better. The markets started to become more saturated. Remember, we're talking around 2000. Uh, increased price competition for everything and this huge shift of power from the supply side to the demand side. So suddenly customers had access to exactly what they wanted, exactly when they wanted to get it and how they wanted to get it. So build it and they will come was turning into give me a compelling reason to come to your store and buy your brand. The challenge there is a completely different one. The old traditional shop model was being outweighed by lower prices and technology and more competition and more selection. All those things were forcing the traditional bike shop into thinking differently. This is a grocery store from, I don't know, I'm guessing 30s, 40s, something like that. And then this is a grocery store that could be today. It's not it's within a few years. And you can see that there is a big difference in terms of uh, romancing the product, designing the space, lighting the space, um, appealing to the customer's senses. Rather than just putting things out, they're doing a lot more of that. In the bike shops, this is an old picture from, I'm going to say the 60s, um, has a lot of the problems that we're talking about. And then this one could be today. This is literally from about, I don't know, seven years ago, but 
could be today. And my point is that some of bike retail hasn't changed as much as other parts of retail have changed. So what do we do about that? Uh, coming up with the third wave from 2000 and on, there's this huge shift happening to consumer power, which you all know about. Um, it's the shift from those who make to those who buy. And what I want to do from here on out in the, in the presentation is talk about the new realities of bike shop retail and what's in the immediate future by looking at what's happening in great retail. So I want to talk about the first word of the day, which is fresh. The same old merchandising design cadence just won't cut it anymore. Here's a couple examples of what I mean. Zara has become well-known. They're starting to build more and more stores now. They're really well-known for developing fashions at light speed, uh, like three weeks from concept to store for a new item. And that would be like a bike company coming up with a new, completely new product, like a bike, and having that in the market in three weeks. It's just unheard of fast. The cadence of what they're doing is so much faster. And that's how they're making their mark. Story, you probably, I don't know, I'm guessing you've seen pictures of Story before because it pops up a lot on the internet. Um, this store was in New York. I say was because well, I'll tell you more in a second. Um, the store, their, their claim to fame is that they change entirely every few weeks. It's not just a facelift. Like they're not just uh, putting new graphics up and putting a new new display out front. They change the entire store. They change the products. They change the design of the space. They rearrange things to change it up completely. So that store that we just looked at might become this store next week. And that might become this store next month. Um, to um, think about what we're talking about here is the cadence of changing things. And they're respecting that and bending over backwards to be changing like crazy. This is a newer photo from the Macy's space that they do. So Macy's saw the potential in what Story was up to, and now Macy's is building Story spaces into their stores, which is a radically different approach from what Macy's has always done or what any larger retailer has done, because it's so much easier just to bring things into the store, let it you know, kind of lock it down, let it sell out, and then change sometime in the future. They're really respecting the, the, the cadence that things need to change in their stores, so they've brought in story. On a very small scale, of course, the same thing applies. So this is a quote from the retail doctor, moving a product from its regular shelf location to a featured end cap has been proven to lead to an average sales increase of 25%. So it makes sense you'd regularly move things around. Now, you guys don't necessarily have end caps in your stores, but the same point applies. Just moving things around freshens the, the merchandising, freshens the display, and helps you to tell a better story that interests people. So to kind of wrap up the fresh part here, think for yourself about how fast your store refreshes itself. Think about how often you re-merchandise things. Uh, Ever since I've been involved in the bike business, re-merchandising has been something that we've urged, but now it's becoming more and more a necessity of, of holding your own. You've got to increase the cadence to, to hold your own in the retail environment we're in. And then think about how you can speed things up for your own store. Last note on this fresh thing. Uh, one of the big things that we do when we help a store to design is to think through uh, setting yourself up for the future by doing things like easily changeable graphics. There's some technology in graphics these days that's just amazing that allows you to change things out in a split second with no tools, makes it very easy. Harder it is to change something like that, the less likely you are to do it and the less often you want to do it. So set yourself up with some really easy stuff to change. Same exact thing applies to fixtures. Um, we always recommend you have one fixture system for your store throughout the whole store so that everything is very interchangeable. 
um, if you had three or four different fixture systems throughout the store and different products on those things, sometimes changing those out, creating new displays can be a pain in the butt. But if you have one consistent set of fixtures around the whole store, then swapping things out becomes much easier and you're much more likely to do it. Uh, on the lighting front, just keep in mind when you're lighting a store that what you put there today down below on the floor may not be there tomorrow or it may change a lot. So make sure that your lights are aimable. Make sure that the layout that you have is flexible and you can move things around. Brings us to the next word of the day, which is experiences. There's been a lot of talk about experience retail or experience in retail. Uh, and it's because it's the truth these days. Goods and services are no longer enough. Stores can't just be about distributing products. They need to be about distributing experiences, less stores, more stories, that means putting less emphasis on shopping and more emphasis on entertainment, hospitality, and community. Great example of this is Sonos, and this is their store in New York. What they've done here in this store is they designed this environment that has many smaller environments within it that allow you to immerse yourself in the listening experience. They're not the first ones to do this. Um, but it's a great example of something that's happening today. All of their products are inside these listening rooms and what you won't find are rows of products on display. Um, what I want you to think about is what did the, the stereo store of the 1970s look like? You could describe it very similar to the way you would describe a bike shop. Um, you know, that, that bike shop that I've been talking about. Um, there was a lot of product out on the floor. There were racks and racks of audio equipment in rows. There was, you know, different speaker rooms that weren't all about the experience other than just separating the audio environment so that you could hear one speaker over the other. So they've, you know, the change that Sonos is doing here is, is kind of like what, what that industry is doing to move into the next, uh, into the next wave of retail. Um, in their stores, there's no point of sale per se. There's not a counter, but everything is done via the handheld devices. That's a move that we've seen in bike retail, of course. Um, I'm not a proponent of completely removing a cash wrap counter because I feel like people, especially in a bike shop where there's lots of little things to pick up, need a place to sit things to be able to check out, and they like to be able to go to a place to find people. Um, so these listening environments, are all about that experience that we're talking about. And the result is that you never feel like you're being sold anything. They're not trying to sell you stuff. They're just trying to share a great listening experience with you, which would be a cool angle for someone to be able to describe your store on those terms. Hunter's another great example of experience being built into the stores. Uh, Hunter's in England, and they make clothing for the outdoors, especially uh, inclement weather, wet conditions, things like that. So they bring the outside in in this way. Design-wise, I'm not a gigantic fan of the way they look, but I respect what they're doing here. Uh, there's clouds on the ceiling. There's grass on the floor. There are these uh, elements out here with the green stuff on them are actually screens that can be changed up behind the product so they can change the look of the store in an instant. Uh, and conjure up different ideas, different experiences. Uh, as you're in the store, you might hear thunder, you might hear a rainstorm, you might hear weather reports. So they're incorporating more senses into the experience. The only senses that typically get uh, leveraged in uh, a bike shop are a visual thing, of course, because the product's beautiful. And then maybe there's some music in the background. Uh, but man, what if you incorporated more ways to immerse people in the, in the whole experience? Another great example, kind of an age-old example, is REI. This is the flagship in Denver. That store is a great experience store because you've got things like the rock climbing wall. Um, but the whole space itself causes one to have to explore to find the products that they want. So the shopping experience really nails home the whole experience of getting out in the outdoors and having fun exploring. 
And then you've got things like, there's others that do this too, but Casper's building uh, sleeping rooms into their retail stores. So you can go in and test a bed on your own in privacy for a couple minutes or take a nap, do whatever you want. And that's exactly what they're trying to do is immerse you in the experience of having that, that product. Uh, closer to home, this is a product that we built for Giant years ago, and I'm sure you've seen this kind of thing, where you just sit the kid's bike on there, the training wheels hold it up, the rear wheel's loose, and the kid can sit on that and spin, can pedal like crazy all they want without getting the white tires dirty, and they're starting to experience what's going, what's going to happen on that bike when they get outside. So that's a really great experience thing. Uh, I also wanted to bring up that we should think more broadly about the experience of these incredible products that you have in your store. Um, a lot of them are really like pieces of art these days. Uh, the technology that's in them, the materials that are used, the paint, the, the finishes, uh, the weight, all of these things go together. They become very aesthetically pleasing. That's part of the experience, and I don't think we should forget about that. Um, it's, it's certainly the ride experience is the biggest thing, but there's also a lot of experience in having a beautiful product and displaying it in your house. So um, think about ways that you can kind of leverage that part of the experience in your store. Wrapping up experiences here, what parts of the cycling experience get your customers' blood pumping the most? Is there a new product that you can carry that enhances that experience? Is there a, a product that could be displayed, merchandised next to the products that you already have that kind of nails home this whole experience thing? Are you thinking broadly enough about that? Uh, can you incorporate more senses into your store? And have you built experiences for all kinds of different customers? And, and not just thinking about the most common kind of customer for that type of product. Which leads me to the next word of the day, which is bespoke. Bespoke basically means the opposite of off the rack or making people feel special, making them feel like this is the only one. We've all experienced over the last many years ways that this is happening across the board, like being able to, to dial up the soda that you want with 19 different flavors if you wanted to do that or get anything you want out of those myriad of choices. You might have designed your own M&Ms online. You might have designed your own coat or your own pants or your own tennis shoes or something like that. You might have experienced something like this where this bespoke place in London actually writes a uh, handwritten message in the product to kind of personalize everything. This is a quote from the chief operating officer of Nike in 2015. It says, do I envision a future where Nike might still own the file from an IP perspective? And you can manufacture that either in your home or we'll do it for you at our store. Oh yeah, that's not far away. And that's from 2015. The future is gonna be crazy. There's going to be things that you just can't expect or you don't expect right now in terms of the way that things are going to come about. Um, the 3D printing technology is just one way that I can think that would be uh, leveraged to make this happen. And I don't, I don't claim to know what the, what the future holds and what kind of products would be the first ones or, or any of the ones that are going to happen this way inside your store. But imagine maybe a scenario where uh, you can find out the bike that your customer has or the bars that your customer has, uh, locate the light that they want, locate the computer they want, and you can 3D print the exact right bracket for that thing based on the configuration that they wanted and make a absolute one-of-a-kind uh, product for them right inside your own store. Who knows? Something like that could happen, and I'm sure that the, you know, that kind of thinking is going to be much broad, much more broadly uh, used. I have to admit that Project One, the track's done for years. It's 
it's exactly what we're talking about. It's making people feel like legitimately like the product that they're getting is the only one of its kind in the whole world and you are a very special person for having that. Um, I think that they've done an amazing job. Not that every bike that's going to be sold is going to be like this, but you are really making a strong connection with people who do take advantage of this. And the same kind of a thing can be extended uh, into different price levels, into different kinds of products. So we need to think about that. Um, oh, look at that. I don't know if that will play. It's Okay, well, what you're seeing there that's not playing is video from BMW World in Germany. And the story here is what they're doing is they are customizing the purchase process for the cars and the pickup process for the cars. So when you go to pick up your car at BMW, your brand new beautiful BMW, you walk out and you're presented your new vehicle on a rotating platform in front of everybody. Uh, then you're introduced to the car with a person that spends as much time as you need to walk through every little in and out of the car. You sit in it, they help you adjust it, they take pictures of you while you're in the car, getting into the car, turning it on, or turning it on for the first time. They really make a huge deal out of delivering the product and making that customer feel special. May not be a completely different product than the next guy down the, down the line, but they make you feel like you're the only one in the whole world that gets this kind of attention. So closer to home here, um, we helped uh, Alchemy design a sales process. Um, they make you know great-looking bikes that are kind of pieces of art in themselves. And what we decided to do was create this display where when you walk in the front doors of the Alchemy space here in Denver, if you're picking up a bike, this is going to be your bike on the on the display there, right out in front and center in front of everybody. What's not shown here is there's a fancy hang tag with a leather keychain built into it that has the customer's name on it right there. It has uh, information about the bike itself and the way it's configured. And it has a birth certificate for the bike that tells who the owner is, what the serial number is, all the specifications of the product. And it makes you feel like, my gosh, this is the only one of its kind in the whole world. I think I've done just the right thing here. So bespoke on that front, think about how you might customize the purchase process. Think about how you might make people feel special. Uh, how can you make them feel like they're the only ones of that product? And does your sales process lead to a great story after the fact? Guarantee if someone goes through BMW world, picks up their car like that, when someone sees their new car, they're going to get told that story, which is great. Um, can you design a way for your premier customers to experience the sales process in a whole different way? And then what if you added a special unique treat to the bike purchase process that they don't expect to help them feel like this is a one-of-a-kind experience? I'm going to move on to the next word of the day, which is community. Now, I would be completely remiss if when talking about community, I didn't mention social media. But I'm not going to really go there, because we all know that that's super important in terms of community these days. I want to acknowledge that, but I don't want to take time talking about it. I want to talk about other things. Community in uh, bike shops, well, it's, let me step back. West Elm is a national retailer, obviously, that's realized the need for community in their stores, for local community. So they invented West Elm Local. And I would guess that you've seen West Elm Local in stores. What it is, is every, uh, not every, most West Elms have a spot for West Elm Local where local artisans or makers can, can show their own stuff, featured right alongside to all of the other West Elm stuff that's available nationally. But it gives a complete uh, flavor of some locally made, locally sourced products in each of the West Elm stores. So that focus on human connection is a real differentiator. Now the big thing to think about here is West Elm's a national retailer. So creating a local flavor 
is a really huge challenge for them. You guys, bike shop retailers, have a huge advantage in that you are already the local. You're the local expert. You are present in the community, and you don't have to bend over backwards to create a new thing. You just have to leverage what you already have. That may look like creating your own uh, local merchandise, your own store merchandise, which most people do in some form or fashion, but it might be worth thinking about amping that up and increasing the selection or just talking about it more inside the store. So consider featuring local products where possible. Even bring in some stuff that you wouldn't typically carry because it's local and tell that story. Create your own local pride merchandise. Everybody has local pride, no matter where you go in the U.S., everybody has some local pride and you need to leverage that. Communicate your local story in the store. If you've been present in your community for 50 years as a bike shop, man, you need to be shouting that at the top of your lungs because that's such a huge advantage over everybody else that you're competing with from a national scale. Um, feature ride photos and and bios of local riders. Like, make sure that you can see, you can get the sense when you're walking around the store that this place is of the local community. And then, of course, host and participate in local events and rides and stuff. A couple last thoughts on this. Um, in terms of community, Full Cycle and Boulder is a great example. We helped them design the space. They were a very typical looking uh, Wave 2 kind of a bike shop uh, where too much product, things hanging in weird places not merchandised very well, and they said that they wanted to carve out a third of their whole store and turn it into a bar with food to be uh, to act as a community move. So we did that, and it's been tremendously successful. Now they have events with bands inside their their space where people are having fun, hanging out with each other, hanging out at the bar, and all around the bike product in there. That's a great community move. And then you also have things like uh, Fleet Feet. Um, we helped Winston-Salem uh, with uh, store design. They have running clubs that have like 230 people at 10 bucks a person. But they also do training programs, which is, I think, genius, where they have 1,200 people at $100 to $150 per program, not per year. So the same person might go to more than one program go through more than one program. But they do this training and above and beyond everything. There's a little bit of money to be made there, but above that is the community that that uh, creates. They also built into their space. If you were there, this corner of their space is this room here. Um, it has bleachers in there that can be moved around. They do presentations in there. They might have a product manager company come in and uh, and talk about things. They might loan it out to someone who's doing a fundraising campaign or something. They do race packet pickups, trainings, stretching, whatever you want to, and that room becomes a hub of the community for running. And then there's, of course, I'm sure many of you have great, strong riding clubs, um, full cycles with the with a couple hundred females in it is a really great, strong example. So to wrap up community, um, think about if your store could pull off a local pride collection of things and go for it, and then think big. Is there a different level of club or group that you could create? Are all of your customers completely aware of the community activities and events you do, or do they know how long you've been around and how much a part of the community you've been? And does every transaction end with, or at least have space for, a Facebook or an Instagram moment along the way? Next up is integrated. And when I say integrated, I pretty much mean integrating a smartphone into the shopping experience, uh, bringing more than one thing into that shopping experience. 68% of millennials expect the brands are going to provide an integrated shopping experience. I think that's probably an underestimation. Nearly three out of four or 71% of shoppers now access their phone while they're in stores, which to me really means that 29% are liars because I think everybody uses their phones inside stores. 
which means that's a really important thing to respect. When they're in your store, in any store, they're doing things like researching products and product information, checking prices against what you have, downloading digital coupons, accessing the retailer's app if you have one, scanning QR codes. Um, this is just a screenshot from the application that uh, Lowe's built to help you navigate their store and it'll give you turn-by-turn -turn directions with the big arrow that gets you straight to the product that you want and along the way it's going to try and cross-sell you on other products. That's you know, the navigation part is rarely necessary inside a bike shop, but that kind of thinking is an interesting thing. Then we've got the Amazon Go um, kind of uh, store model. Um, and I'm not suggesting this is where the bike shop of the future is going, where you just walk in and walk out with the bike and it automatically charges your phone or, or whatever for what's going on there. But there is a there's something about the thinking here that we need to respect because it's becoming more and more a force inside retail. Here's an example, and I'm not picking this example because it's incredible. I'm picking it because it's pretty simple. Um, Dirty Lemon in Manhattan sells healthy drinks via this display. I haven't seen it in person. I've only seen articles about it. Basically, you pay for the purchase using your phone by texting them. So it's an honor system, glorified honor system. And that kind of thinking, you know, obviously you're not going to sell a carbon road bike this way, but maybe there's something in your store. Maybe there's an experience in or around your store where you could implement something like this, where people are able to leverage the technology that they have in their hand and take advantage of what you have going on in the store. The paying for things via your phone while in the store and skipping the line entirely is becoming more popular. Um, Stance is, is doing this now where the customer can just scan the barcode on the back of the product and then use Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever to pay for the product and then essentially walk out the door after they've shown people up front that they've paid for it. That kind of thinking is becoming more prevalent and it's something a great retailer is doing today that the bike shop of the immediate tomorrow will be needs to be thinking about. So here's some easy ways to integrate. Provide free Wi-Fi first, of course. Showcase user-generated content next to products. Make sure, well, not make sure, but try to uh, get pictures from someone enjoying one of the products that you have and stick those in the store. goes right back to that community building thing and it um, encourages people to be thinking about ways that they can integrate the shopping experience um, themselves. Offer mobile coupons to customers while they're in shopping. I'm going to show you an idea in a second. Give in-store discounts for social media promotion, like offer them a discount or, or something else if they were to like you on Facebook or like you on Instagram or, or whatever. And then give shoppers a mobile checkout option which is more and more viable as time goes by. Um, and I wanted to really nail down how simple this could be. Um, we've all seen the QR code out there. Um, if you have or you haven't, take out your phone while this is on the screen. And if you aim your camera, uh, your normal camera from your phone at the QR code here, it's going to pull up a website. That website doesn't have to be a website. It could be whatever content you want to deliver to them. So you could put QR codes around the store, have people scan them with their phone, and bring up different things, like maybe this. Get this tube for free when you purchase a tire for it. I don't know what the offer is, but you get the idea. Um, that could come up on their screen. Then they would be, then they'd go find a tire, and when they check out, they just show you this, and uh, you've integrated their shopping experience. Or uh, join our mailing list and get this tube for free uh, or or get a discount on something. You could capture their email address while they're in the store, while they want the product, uh, directly via their phone. 
So you've got now some more information, they get a discount or a free product or something, and they're happier. Or consider even doing this, like give them a two-minute survey to take while they're in the store even, on their phone, and ask them about aspects of your store that you'd like to be doing well on. Because they're in the store, the research is invaluable because they're not trying to remember what they experienced in the store. They're actually looking at it inside the store. Um, offer them something in exchange for doing that little two-minute survey while they're hanging out in your store. So it, it can be that simple to integrate the cell phone into the purchase process and help really engage the customer there. The next word of the day is story. Another big word that I'm sure you've heard talked about a lot. The fact is that humans are not ideally set up to understand logic. They're ideally set up to understand stories. Um, logically speaking, the Apple product that's in an Apple store is the same at the Apple store as it is in Walmart. But the, the difference is the story that the two places tell. You get a much different feel from a Walmart versus the uh, Apple store. Uh, and a great story evokes, evokes emotion and visualization, which makes it really easy to remember. It's just, it's brain stuff. They can prove with brain scans that when you tell someone a story, it brings up the same dopamine, the same reactions as, as those experiences actually happening. So story is a very, very powerful tool. And stories make it up to 22 times more memorable than straight facts. What you gotta think about here is how many times have bike companies or retailers or whoever just put facts out in front of customers. You know, here's all the specs about this bike. Here's the here's the frame angles and the the uh, measurements and the weight and the the fancy gizmos on that bike and all that, without telling the story of what's going on behind that. We need to be concentrating on storytelling, and it goes way back to caveman times. Like, imagine you telling someone, "Don't go over there." It's not a story, you're just telling someone not to go over there. These are the facts. But if you told them the last person that went over there was eaten by a huge bear, that becomes a small story, and that small story is a lot more memorable, and it gives them a reason to listen and, and remember that story. So if you knew that the last person was eaten by a huge bear, you're certainly not gonna go over there. Inside retail, stories can be told a million different ways. And I didn't just pick this picture because the word story is in their display. But they are doing a good job of busting out tons of little vignettes, little little stories in themselves uh, in their shopping experience. Every one of those little cubicles holds a different kind of a story. Some look like they're better done than others, but each one is helping you to immerse yourself in the storytelling about how great the product is that's that's on display there. What's the story that happens when you see this? This is merchandising that's telling a really, really strong story. This is saying, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be perfect if on a rainy Sunday you were by a fireplace and you had nice, comfy, squishy chairs that you got some some pillows from your last trip and you put those on there and then you just sat there and you enjoyed some board games with the family or you grabbed a book and you read a book by the fireplace. That storytelling is golden. Uh, it really helps you to bond with the product, bond with the store that understands your experience. Go from there. What's the story here? This is from uh, North Face Store. They're in a, not a not a terribly literal way, but they're telling you the story of being outside in the mountains, on the on the uh, slopes, wherever. Uh, the perspective that you have on this mannequin that's up here is kind of like the perspective you, you'd get if someone's passing you on a chairlift, or someone that's up on a rock face, or something like that. So they're telling the story in an exciting kind of dynamic way with their merchandising about what you're gonna experience when you get out there. Um, too many times in the bike world, bikes are just put 
out in a row in front of something like a sign or something, and they skip over all of the important elements that surround that and the, the really great emotion that can be conjured up with just the display. Think really, really tiny. Everything can tell a story. If they didn't weren't interested in telling a story here, this would just say Cranberry Bliss Bar Tray 1395. Be the office hero. That's a short story. Of course I want to be the office hero. Man, it's only 1395 to be a hero. And no longer is the bliss bar what you're buying, it's being a hero. Great storyteller at retail is the Yeti store in Austin. Um, this is what great retail is doing. The uh, bike shops can learn from. I'll talk about the stuff on the left here in a second, but look at the pickup truck on the right. Um, that tells an amazing story in itself. They've got the, literally the back end of the truck there, the coolers in the back with all the stickers covering it so it feels just like real life. There's stuff inside the cab of the truck. Makes you feel like you would be completely comfortable uh, sitting on the tailgate, having a cold beer at the end of a really, really fun day out there, that tells a huge story. They've gone through a lot to tell that story. These images in the real store are actually moving. They, they kind of move between static and images and moving images. And they're telling great hero worship kind of stories about these people who use Yeti products. And a great part of the story is that they're showing the actual live product that these people used to do the spectacular adventures that they did in those cases below. So that tells a really strong story. This tells a really strong story. They don't, the, the copy up there, the, the words, don't even have to tell you the story because you see the flame or the, uh, the effects of the heat on the outside of that cooler and you see the there being no effects inside the cooler that tells the whole story where, my gosh, if this cooler can hold up to being in a burning car or in a forest fire or whatever this was, and it can still keep the contents cold, then it can certainly hold up to being out there in a, on a warm day. It's a great storytelling piece. And then they bring it down really small, too, where they tell stories on the labels of their products. Instead of just listing stats about the product, they tell you stories about what the product does for you. So think about what stories your store tells. Uh, think about how you can take a typical display and amp up the storytelling. On your staff, try to find someone who kind of identifies visual stories well and put them more in charge of uh, merchandising things, if not entirely, but just have them help brainstorm the ways that you're going to merchandise things. And then can you brainstorm a story that uh, that might position your customer as a hero in their own story? Uh, and it doesn't have to be a hero, literally. But just think about how whatever you're putting on display incorporates your customer. This is the last word of the day. We're getting close here. Remarkable. And what I mean by remarkable is something that's worthy of having a remark or remarkable. Uh, you would want to comment on it if you saw it in a store. In this store, if you walked in and there's a giant dinosaur made out of handbags, that's remarkable. It's super interesting. You might be interested in taking a picture in front of that. You might be interested in just taking a picture of it and posting it someplace. It engages you with the store. Same here. This thing, it's no mistake that those are seats in front of that muscly body form there uh, so that people are going to sit on that and take selfies or have other people take pictures of them because it's just kind of fun and, and, and different. That's remarkable. Or a store that we helped in northern Colorado, we built this gigantic RockShox Pike Fork for this exact same reason. We wanted to draw people through the store um, to get them to the, the corners because it's kind of a weird shaped store and we needed to encourage people to circulate through it. But then the gigantic fork works as a, an attraction and people take pictures in front of it and, and engage with it. Same reason why Apple stores spend a lot of money on being 
kind of spectacular looking when it's in a when it's in a big city. They just want to be remarkable in some way. Again, take that down to a smaller level. This shoe display is remarkable in itself because it causes you to spend a little bit more time looking at it because it's interesting. There's the shoe on the top, which is where most everybody would stop. But they put the shoe on the bottom, which tells a story of, I don't know, maybe the shoe's really light. Uh, it's just plain visually appealing, something like that. But they've gone through a little bit to make this one simple little display kind of remarkable. Um, I'm not suggesting that paint cans make the perfect lights for your store, but making choices that are unique and individual like that can be exactly what I'm talking about in terms of remarkable or picking different materials for your store. Uh, instead of just painting drywall next time you do some sort of remodel, maybe you pick something that's more interesting, more remarkable in itself. It doesn't have to be more expensive, just has to be more interesting. And if you're going to do a sign in the store, maybe rather than just printing it on vinyl and sticking it to the wall, maybe you do something that's got some more dimension to it or have it built out of neon or LEDs or something like that. Just think about how to take what you normally do and take it one step more remarkable. Or maybe you stick animal heads in your store. Or maybe you create kind of a really interesting art piece out of bikes for your bike shop. Something extra to look at that's remark worthy inside the store, um, that kind of thing. When you combine it with all the other things we're talking about is a great thing to do. All right, one last hot tip. And that last hot tip is a really simple one and I can't believe more people don't take advantage of it. And that is add some more plants to your store. <laughs> but the product that you're selling, bikes, is meant for the outdoors. So a great thing to do is to bring the outdoors in to a store, to conjure up the imagination about where you're going to be out there on your bike. And I'm shocked at how many people, how, how few stores have anything green inside the store. Such an easy thing to do, even if the plants are fake. Not dreadful looking, but if, even if they're fake and you bring them into the store, that's going to go a long way to help tell the story of being outside and enjoying that great product out there. All right, so to wrap things up, I wanted to just kind of try to encourage you a bit because most retailers out there would kill to be in our shoes. Uh, you have really high average selling prices on bikes relative to other products out there that consumers uh, purchase. We have great customers that are really emotionally motivated, they're healthy, and they're affluent. Um, we get to specialize in fun, uh, we get to specialize and have fun doing that specializing. We're not hurting the world, we're helping it, and we add to people's life, we don't take away from them, which is huge. And at the end of the day, just the mere appearance of a bike creates a rush of joy for your customers. And like, my gosh, how many industries would kill to be able to say that? So to me, the future of bike retail is really, really bright if we just listen to those trends that will help us take us into this next century and, and help customers engage with everything that we have. And with that, I want to say thanks again uh, for being here, for taking the time. And if anybody has any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer those now. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, do you? Can we hire you to to remodel our store? Is that something you do, and service-wise? Why, yes. <laughs> I'm glad I, I would love to help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we do. Um, okay, perfect. I come in alongside stores, understand their brand, and then help to figure out all of the things that we're talking about here. I help them to figure out the ways that we're going to do that for their store. Okay, great. Um, will your contact information be somewhere on here at the end? or? 
I would assume so. This is my first time doing this for the MBDA, so I'm not sure how all that works. However, I'm easily accessible. You can go to fixturelab.com, and there's a phone number there. Uh, there's also email. information on the NBDA website. If you're an NBDA uh, yeah. member, you get a discount with Fixture Lab. Yeah, oh, that's, that's right. a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, yes. Half off, right? That's sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Half uh, off. The power well, of selling. it's not really half off. NBDA is paying me for that other half. So, you know, it's you pay half, they pay half. Oh, not okay, really. good. So it's 75% off. I like this even better. No, uh, there's, no. it's really great that what we're offering is actually really viable. So check that out. No, that's awesome. Thank you. You did a great job. And I appreciate your insights and value what you've done here. And, and uh, I, 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 I know, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a CI, CI dad, a CI husband, a CI boss. You know, what that means is continuous improvement. I'm always continuous improving and trying to be a better dad, a better husband, a better, a better shop, a better everything. So I don't like to sit still. I like to keep moving forward as I don't want to get stale. Um, and I want to be uh, challenged. And so I think this is great stuff for, for me. And uh, uh, so I'll definitely look you up on MBDA and, and fixturelab.com and, and uh, get a hold of you. I feel like I need to talk to you more so I can get some quotes for my next presentation. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I got a couple questions. Somebody wrote in and said, what are good sources for making signage? Uh, not looking for one-off images. Um, okay, I'll take that one here. There, there's a lot of different resources out there. If you'd like, again, you can follow up with me and I can share the uh, exact ones with you. There are... Um, there's a system, a format that we use for most of the graphics that we do these days that you might have seen in your store. It's called a silicone edge graphic uh, where they print on fabric and it's got literally a silicone edge that's sewn onto that graphic. And that edge fits into the frame that you purchase at the, at the start. And then it pulls the graphic really beautifully flat and the printing is gorgeous on the fabric, but then to change that out is so easy because you just pop the fabric out of the frame, pop the new one in, no tools necessary. And that's a perfect example of the kind of stuff that I'm talking about in terms of making the graphics swappable. Um, the imagery itself that goes on those things, I understand your challenge uh, completely. Uh, you get some you probably get resources from bike companies, from bike brands, uh, of people riding the product and all that. But the problem is that those images look the same in your store as they do on, in every other store across America. Um, could be that getting those images and just designing the image itself uh, better, cropping the images more interestingly could be a solution. But also, think about not necessarily being so CSA in terms of what you see as a visual in a bike shop. I constantly recommend that people do other things, things other than just your standard photography of a bike out there in the, in the wild, because uh, everybody does that. Think about artwork, like, like uh, original art that does that, illustrations. Um, there's tons and tons of good resources for stock illustration for neat graphic design that could be used that conjure up the same kind of feelings but aren't quite so literal as the photographer photography that we're talking about. Um, if you need help in terms of fixtures, uh, we do that a lot too. We can also help recommend any strategy that you need to in terms of uh, displaying different kinds of products. Um, I'd be happy to, to, to talk with anybody about those kind of things. Again, fixturelab.com is, is the place to get that. I even help uh, retailers work with the specialized giant and treks of the world to help make sure that they get what they need to out of the mix uh, when those three brands, one of those three brands is going to help them in their own store. I'm on very friendly terms with all the bike brands, and I 
thoroughly enjoy working with them to help you pull off an amazing store, and I can help uh, consult through that that process, which is a pretty unique offering. Oh, there's a bunch more questions. Um, is it your opinion that the whole that the store as a whole should change every month? No, I mean yes and no. Certainly, things need to change, need to be freshened all the time, and maybe even once a month is is not often enough in some regards. But it's not like you need to change the whole store. Think about the uh, customer walking in and uh, taking in what's inside the store. If they can tell that some stuff has changed across the store, that might be enough to to uh, communicate to them that you're really paying attention and things are exciting and different now. Um, next question is, would you have any suggestions for the service side of the bike shop and how to attract a customer to your store for service? I just uh, wrote an article for the NBDA, for the Outspoken newsletter on, at least somewhat on that topic. Um, the thing about service areas, oh gosh, there's a lot to talk about there. Do you have another two hours? Um, uh, certainly designing the space that the service area occupies in your store, putting that in the right position is a really, really important decision these days. And that doesn't necessarily mean just sticking it out in the front. Um, having good adequate signage inside the store and using the, the creative materials that I was talking about a little bit earlier to create the signage or to create the, the face of the service department, those things all play into it. Um, just so much to think about there. Let me jump to the next question. Um, what would you say would be the best approach to achieve what you recommend for a shop with a small budget? I think pay attention to like if you look at the presentation over again and I intentionally included things were small examples um, like it doesn't cost much to put on a price tag build in a little story into that price tag you know uh, it doesn't necessarily cost any more to do something creative with the lighting in the store rather than the traditional lighting that you might put in there um, Think about, uh, there's some economy in being really smart with your resources like those graphics that I was talking about. If you don't do something that's easy to swap out, it becomes much more costly to change things out in the future. So you're gonna you know, break the bank later on down the road. Uh, so if you set yourself up for success early on with stuff that's easily swappable, easy to replace, inexpensive to print, then that's gonna set you up really well you don't have to spend a fortune to make significant changes. Uh, and if you'd like, we uh, offer, it's not like our company has to help you on a whole store to be valuable. We can help you on right down to the smallest display. I think that's the questions. All right, so that's it. I really thank MBDA again for the chance to talk to you. I hope that some of you might want to follow up with me and get some more information, and I look forward to helping in the future again. Uh, thanks for making the time. Take care, everybody. Have a great, a great day and a great summer. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at NBDA dot com.